0: Welcome to OneGreatMoment.com, a podcast clearinghouse for everybody's greatest stories. We've all got a tale to tell, and someday we'd love to hear yours, see our website for how that works. But here and now, in this moment, we're off to Moment number 6, A Sea Story, in which a budding musician tries his hand at commercial fishing, with good and bad results, but somehow the music survives. Story and music by Guy Greider. Enjoy your listen. I've always loved music ever since I was a little kid. It's been that way ever since the Beatles showed up. I was hooked right there. I wanted to learn to play the guitar. I learned a few chords and played with my buddies and then played in bands all the way through school. We had a lot of fun with that. Finally in my early twenties, I decided to really go for it. I wanted to see if I could make a living playing my guitar. I played in a couple bands and was moderately successful, but I felt like I needed to be in a bigger market. It was April 1975. My friend Chris was living in Seattle at the time and offered to let me stay at his place, at least for a while. He had two roommates, Corky, who was also a professional musician, and Ken, a Seattle school teacher. Right away, Corky introduced me to his booking agent, and I got a one-month job playing as a solo act in a small club on Vashon Island, right across from downtown Seattle. Each evening I drove through Seattle and caught the West Seattle Ferry across Puget Sound to Vashon and worked Tuesday through Saturday nights. But like most musicians, it wasn't the music but the music business that drove me crazy. There always seemed to be a gap between one job and the next, and it always seemed to be just around the corner. This put a definite gap in my finances too, and I hadn't exactly landed that big record deal yet. I was sitting around Chris's house one night talking with Ken, his other roommate, and found out that in addition to teaching school, Ken's summers were occupied by owning and operating a small commercial fishing boat. The salmon season was about to begin and he was looking for a deckhand. Once again, considering my finances, I told him I was available and just like that I had a job. Not exactly what I'd set out to do, but at least it would put some money in my pocket. Besides, it was just for the summer. Ken's boat was based in Blaine, Washington, which is within sight of the Canadian border. And the night before we left Seattle for the two-hour drive to Blaine, we all went out to see a movie about a small boat and a very big shark. That's right, we went to see Jaws. And later on, my frequent flashbacks to that movie when I was on that boat not helped by the fact that a fisherman out of Grays Harbor, Washington, which granted is a few hundred miles south of where we were going to fish, caught a 4,000 pound great white shark in his net in August of 1969. As far as I know, that shark is still on display in the Grays Harbor Maritime Museum. Now about one year before my arrival in Blaine, Washington, on February 12th, 1974, Federal Judge George Bolt issued an historic ruling reaffirming the rights of Washington's Indian tribes to fish in their accustomed places. The Bolt decision allocates 50% of the entire annual catch to treaty Indian tribes. And that decision really enraged other commercial fishermen and sport fishermen. At the same time, the Judge Bolt decision denies landless tribes the Samish, the Snoqualmie, the Stilicom, and the Duwamish federal recognition and treaty rights. And the non-Indian commercial fishermen all up and down the Washington coast were in an uproar over the decision, but had little power to do anything about it. The Bolt decision had revolutionized Washington state fishing and had led to violent clashes between tribal and non-tribal fishermen and regulators. In order to comply with the ruling, non-tribal fishermen were designated certain days when they could fish. And the commercial salmon fishing fleet, in general, was divided between two kinds of boats. Large purse seiners and smaller gill netters. The purse seiners caught fish by pulling a, a net around in a circle with a small skiff, and then closing a cable on the bottom and then hauling the whole thing aboard with a crane. And the gill netters caught fish by setting a net horizontally out in the water and then the fish swam into it and were caught around the gills. And Ken's boat was a gill netter. When we arrived in Blaine mid-afternoon one rainy June day and drove straight to the dock where I got my first look at the Nor Lee. She was 42 feet long and had a wooden hull. She had no transom and was designed as a double ender, so that she could face into the weather from either the bow or the stern. The wheelhouse was directly in the middle, with lots of deck room on either side. She had a huge spool of net on the rear deck that could be paid out or brought back in through a window of rollers on the far aft deck that kept the net organized while it was being worked. Below deck was a small galley and a couple sleeping berths, and in the aft section was the diesel engine. Very simple setup, but hey, this was a working boat. We took up residency in a cheap hotel a couple of blocks off the docks. And since we would be working at night and sleeping during the day, we would not get much rest on the boat, so the hotel bill was just going to have to be part of our expenses. And Even though the waters around Blaine are protected from the Pacific Ocean by the southern end of Vancouver Island and the San Juans, The weather can still be fierce in there with storms coming down the streets of Georgia that bring heavy rain and winds and build up tremendous sea conditions, especially for an inland waterway like that. However, this would not be the case for this first night of fishing. The weather cleared that first night and we motored out into Drayton Harbor, turned our backs to the harbor and turned south into the fishing grounds of Puget Sound. The sunset was beautiful on the water and the work was about to begin. As soon as it was dark, which is pretty late in Puget Sound in June, we set the net. This is done by attaching a large buoy with a light on it to one end of the net, putting the boat in gear and letting the pull of the water help the PTO from the engine pay the net out through the rollers. This takes quite a while because the net is 300 yards long and 100 feet deep. Once the net is just about all in the water, another lighted buoy is attached and the whole thing is set free. Now the net and the boat are separate, but you always had to be careful about getting a part of the net tangled in the prop. We took turns constantly watching the net with a high-powered light to see if it was twisting or being doubled up by the current. After about an hour and a half or so, the process is reversed and the net is brought back aboard with the salmon. first night the fishing was good. By the time the net was aboard, the deck was almost knee-deep in fish. We took a break and let the tide change and motored into Birch Bay and dropped anchor. About 3 a.m., we made another set and then headed back to the dock about sunrise. When we arrived at the dock, the catch was offloaded onto the cannery's docks. We cleaned and tied up the Norley and put her back in her slip and went to the hotel for some sleep. And we repeated this process every night that fishing was allowed by non-treaty fishermen. And some days were harder than others. If the net got damaged during the night, we had to stay up and fix it, either by sewing a patch into it or just mending a tear. And sometimes it was obvious that something really big had broken through that net in the night as if it weren't even there. We thought that maybe an orca whale or something similar had broken through because sometimes it left a hole big enough that you could drive a car through fixing that net took most of the next day about September 1st Ken said that he had to go back to Seattle because the school year was about to begin but there was a month of fishing left with a big silver salmon run still to come he said if I wanted to hire a crewman he would let me captain the boat for the next month Ken left and I contacted my old friend Dave down in Oregon he said that he'd like to go do some fishing and so he'd drive up in a couple days. As soon as Dave arrived, we resumed the fishing routine. And somewhere around the third or fourth night, I remember checking the weather before the, leaving the docks. It was going to be windy and stormy, but still acceptable as far as I can tell. Now, other boat captains made the same decision because we were in the usual traffic as we turned left out of the harbor towards the fishing grounds. As soon as it got dark, which is much earlier this late in the summer, we started to put the net in the water, and the weather really turned. We had about 10-foot seas with 20-25 to 25 knots of wind. And we debated about the weather, but since we'd already started, we just kept going. And once we got the final buoy in the water and moved off downwind to watch it with a light, hit a really monster wave head on we crested up over the top of the wave and it felt like we were falling back behind into the trough with a great crash and the bow of the boat was buried in black water and the deck was awash about knee deep and the boat finally struggled to right itself and the deck drained we both had a shocked look on our face and checked around with flashlights to see if anything was broken below deck, everything that was not bolted down had fallen on the floor. The small refrigerator had come open and dumped its contents on the floor in addition to broken glass and who knows what else. It was a total mess. We'd both had enough by then. The wind was still picking up, so we decided to get the net back on board as soon as we could and head for shelter. While we did that, the weather continued to get worse closest shelter was in Birch Bay, about five miles away, and we finally got there and set two anchors and figured that we would just ride the storm out and wait for the weather to ease up before going back to the docks in Blaine. And when the work was done and things finally quieted down a bit, I heard an unfamiliar noise. It was the bilge pump, and it was just staying on continuously. I'd never heard that before on this boat. I pulled up some floorboards to have a look, and seawater was just pouring in it was midnight, we were sinking. Somehow we'd knocked a hole in the hull below the waterline. The only choice now was to pull up the anchors and go back out in the storm and try and make it to Blaine where we could get some help. Now we were back out in the storm running in a pitch black sea with huge waves looming up from behind us as if the storm was chasing us back to the harbor. It was raining hard, and the wind was about 30 knots, and that 10-mile run seemed to take forever. Once we got there, we tied up to the dock, got some bigger pumps and shore power to keep us afloat. In the morning, I called Ken to tell him what had happened. He was not happy. He told me that he knew about the storm, and had heard that other boat captains in the fleet had returned to shore as soon as the weather moved in. The only other boat that stayed out besides us had its keel cooler completely torn off by the storm and we were lucky the damage wasn't worse. So my short career as a commercial fishing boat captain ended that morning. Obviously the Nor would have to be hauled out of the water for repairs. The season was over. As it turned out the leak was caused by a piece of caulking that was knocked loose from the wooden hull when we crashed down the backside of that big wave was a sorry end to a pretty good adventure. Some might say that I showed extremely bad judgment that night by not continually checking the weather forecast, and others might just chalk it up to bad luck. The responsibility for the boat and the gear and two lives was certainly mine, but just like anything else in life that's examined carefully, the answer is not always so simple. Certainly, inexperience coupled with overconfidence and an assumption that the weather would hold all played a part, but let's just say there were a lot of lessons learned that summer. I will always carry with me a profound respect for the sea, its awesome power and beauty and tranquility, and also its ability to change moods instantly and become very unforgiving. As I think back on my experience that summer, one thing is for sure, commercial fishing is a tough way to make a living. But then again, so is the music business, as I was about to learn in great detail. But that's another story for another time. I never did get that big record contract. However, my music career did last quite a bit longer than my fishing career. These days, fishing and guitar playing are my hobbies rather than my livelihood, and I think it's better that way did manage to bring one thing with me from the summer of 1975. I wrote all the music that I played behind this story during that summer.